0: I guess I am okay. So tonight's speaker is actually going to be Pastor John Michael Becker from New Philadelphia, Taiwan. So good hand. All right, joint prayer meeting. Let's take a moment. Everybody, stand up. Go ahead and stretch. Take a moment to stretch. Whenever the pastor does that, that means it's going to be a long sermon. So. Let's take your seats. Tonight's message is a unique one. Uh, How many of you guys were here when I preached about prostitution, uh, Korea, and witchcraft? Yeah. Yeah. That was quite a title. Prostitution, witchcraft, and Korea's parents. That was the title. If you guys haven't listened to that message, I want to encourage you you guys to listen to it. Uh, You guys can find it on New Philadelphia Church dot uh, com under the media section is from last year. Tonight's message is going to be kind of similar in style in that this is going to be a lot of sharing, uh, teaching. Is, is this mic all right? You guys okay? No. Too quiet. Okay, it sounds really loud right here. It might be the monitors. It might be the monitors. I don't know. It's really loud to me. Okay, is that better? All right, thanks. No? All right, I, I can't do that. Um, let's turn it up a little. We okay? Is this better? Can you guys hear me? Everybody's okay, good. We got the thumbs up. All right, so tonight's message is going to be a lot of information uh, packed in, but you guys are going to find this pretty interesting. Uh, I, I was pretty mesmerized by this stuff. I wish it was all my own revelation. But uh, it's going to be from a book uh, that I read. Pastor Marcus read it. Pastor John read it. Uh, It was a book Pastor John couldn't put down. He read it almost all through the night. Uh, It's very interesting stuff. And so the title of tonight's message is God's Crazy Prophetic Warnings. It's a great title, right? Uh, I wish I was better at this, but that's the title we have. God's Crazy Prophetic Warnings. And because uh, it's, you know a lot of information. I made slides for you guys because it it all helps. People love to look at a screen. So you guys have slides to look at as we go. I I want you guys to open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. Please open up your Bibles. Isaiah chapter 9. It's going to be very important that you guys read these verses closely. Isaiah chapter 9. I'm going to be reading verses 8 through 10. I want you guys all to look along, read along. You guys can actually leave your Bible open to these verses tonight. Isaiah chapter 9. It's going to provide the framework for tonight's message. Reading verses 8, 9, and 10. Says the Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel, and all the people will know Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. The context of this of these verses is Israel, ancient Israel. Right before they go into exile to the empire of Assyria. This was right after 732 BC. They were attacked by Assyria. God had been warning them through the prophets. They're attacked by Assyria. The bricks have fallen. The trees have been uprooted. But they have not been exiled yet. And their response to this attack was not of repentance. It was not of honoring the prophets and their words. But rather it was of defiance. It was of defiance. The bricks have fallen, but we will we will rebuild. We won't just rebuild with bricks, but we will rebuild with dressed stones. The sycamores have been uprooted, but we're going to plant cedars in their place. It was defiance, and so the rest of Isaiah chapter nine is all judgment upon Israel because of their poor response to the attack of Assyria. Ten years later, that judgment will be would be fulfilled. And they would go into exile into Assyria. You guys got this? This is all about defiance, not repenting and turning to God, but rather turning to their own self-sufficiency, saying, we don't need God. We're going to take care of ourselves. We're going to make it better on our own. Okay, I need you guys to know the context of these verses as we go through this message tonight. The book I'm going to talk about, uh, its actually the information I'm going to talk about, it's from the book The Harbinger. It's by a Messianic Jew named Jonathan Kahn, the Harbinger. I want to encourage you guys to check it out. It was a national uh, bestseller. You can find it in the bookstores here in Itaewon. Good book to read, but I'm going to go through it. I'm going to sum it up pretty quickly. Uh, It's a well-researched book with a lot of crazy prophetic warnings in line with 9-11 and what followed 9-11 in America. I think this stuff is really going to wake you guys up to how much God is in the details and how much we need to be looking to him and not to man. So before I go into the details, I'm going to briefly review what happened on September 11, 2001. I think you guys are all very well aware of what happened. But on that day, Islamic terrorists who were spurred on for hate against America because America's support for Israel and America's other actions in the Middle East, they hijacked four different planes on that day. Two of them, they steered into the World Trade Centers, the, the Twin Towers, of the World Trade Centers, and they were the symbol of the they were the symbol of America's economy. These twin towers. The third, they took into the Pentagon, which was a symbol of America's military. The fourth, the passengers were able to fight against the hijackers. And while it was aimed at the Capitol building, most most people agree it was aimed against the Capitol building of Washington D.C. It crashed in Pennsylvania. So that's what happened on 9/11, and uh, these are the twin towers. Before the attack, they were once uh, the two tallest buildings in, um, in the world. The World Trade Center is actually not limited to just these two towers. It's um, made up of many different towers. But these were the two that were the greatest symbols of America's economy. You would always see these in the movies. They always represented New York, prosperity, money, the market. It is the World Trade Center. That's what it is. And on uh, September 11th, you guys can see the airplane uh, as it went in, it was some of the most disturbing things ever shown on live TV. On live TV, so the explosion, uh, airplane as it flew into the tower, and uh, this was what really got me was when the buildings fell. And I remember watching it in my Virginia Tech dorm. I was um, hold. I was the second year of Virginia Tech, and just watching this, my stomach turned so much. Because watching one of the tallest buildings, two of the tallest buildings in the world crumble, it just shook me up. And I remember that day, a friend of mine asked me if I wanted to fast on behalf of America and what was happening. And uh, at that point, I was just beginning to grow with the Lord. I'd never fasted in my life. And September 11th actually was the first day I ever fasted. And uh, it really grew that discipline within me. But it was something where I just, I didn't want to eat. I was so disturbed by what I'd seen on TV. So uh, here's the aftermath, and I think you guys can't really see in the back, but there's a little circle on the bottom, and uh, that's people uh, taking care of the wreckage. But you guys can see ash and pieces of the building left. The, the aftermath was ridiculous, just how much destruction there was. It took months and years to clean up. Next slide is the uh, Pentagon, and this is before the attack. You guys know this is the symbol of America's military. This is very close to um, where I grew up. Just a few minutes away. And then the next slide is the Pentagon after the airplane hit it. And um, thankfully, the Pentagon wasn't hurt as bad as the World Trade Centers. Uh, Not as many people died. I've talked to people who were in there when it happened. Pretty disturbing. It really shook up America in that it showed just how vulnerable the capital of America is. Whereas for so long, people thought it was safe. uh, This really showed that nothing was really safe in America. This is where we're going to go into for the book. It's time to share from the book, and we're going to hit on the harbinger. Harbinger means one that indicates or foreshadows what is to come. That is the definition of a harbinger. One that indicates or foreshadows what is to come. And I'm going to read this verse again just to get it into your into your mind as I go through this. It says, The bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars In their place. Remember the context. It was a defiant response of Israel to God's initial judgment on the nation. I want you guys to turn to your neighbor right now and say, "God's going to wake you up. He's going to wake you up from your slumber tonight. You guys, stay awake." Hey, before before I go on, I want to say something. I encourage baby believers or people that are just opening up their hearts to God. As I say, ask and you will receive, knock and the door will be opened unto you. Okay. If you seek him, you will find him. All right. If you call on his name, he will answer you. And I tell them that in my life, when I had doubt, what I would do is I would just keep asking and keep seeking and keep knocking. And God would give me an answer and I would kind of like pile it as a coincidence. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That might've been Okay. And then another, and then, then he shows himself again. And again, and again, and it gets to the point where it's going to require me to have more faith to believe that all these coincidences were coincidences than to believe that God is active in my life. And I've, I've said this to many people, and it's just amazing. In one week, they'll come back to me and be like, you don't believe what's happened to me this past week. This happened, and I thought, huh? and then this, and then this, this is one of those messages. Okay, going to build it up. All right, it's going to start, start a little slow. It's going, to, it's going to build up. But let's go ahead. The first harbinger or prophetic warning is the breach. The breach. Breach in the wall. Okay, that's a wall that's been broken open. What happened on September 11th proved that the hedge of protection on America was no longer there. What they had enjoyed for so long, that hedge of protection, it had been breached. And, um, I mean, if, for those of you who lived in America, it released a lot of fear. Remember, a lot of people said they wouldn't want to fly again. Uh, A lot of people were afraid of what might happen next. A lot of fear was released in America because they no longer felt safe. There was a breach. And if you guys were there in America, you might remember right after 9-11, there was a minimal response. God Bless America was sung at ballparks all across America. Pretty amazing when you think about it. Because if someone tried to sing God Bless America right now, I imagine they would be pushed off stage right away. They'll be grabbed and mocked. But for a moment after 9-11, there was prayer. There was God bless America. Let's sing to him. People uh, were were worshiping. People were seeking God. But it didn't last long. It It was very quickly removed from the ballparks. People stopped praying. People just started to move along. But the breach still remained. Just because they stopped paying attention, just because they stopped praying, didn't mean that that hedge of protection had been filled up. They had just moved on. So that's the first harbinger. The second harbinger is the terrorist. It's the terrorist. So who are the people to attack and conquer the Israelites? I already said it. They were the Assyrians, the Assyrian people. What were the Assyrians known for? And I actually studied this. I paid attention in world history in high school. I found out that my Bible study didn't, but but, uh, I did pay a lot of attention. And we studied world civilizations, the Phoenicians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians. And what the Assyrians were known for were was terror. This is what they were known for. Assyrians burned cities to the ground, they mutilated their prisoners, they flayed alive those who rebelled against them, and they took their skin and nailed it to walls. That's what the Assyrians did. Okay, they they weren't just like yeah, angry people. They weren't just warriors like the Romans or the Persians. These people were nasty. They brought terror to the nations. They were masters of terror. They were terrorists. (laughs) What was the purpose of Assyria? What was the purpose of Assyria? If you read in Isaiah 10, if you were to read the next chapter, God states that they are the rod of his anger and that they are sent against a godless nation. Isaiah 10.7 states, It is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. What was the language of the Assyrian people? It was Akkadian, a language that's been extinct for some time, but the language that is closest to it is Arabic. The language that the Assyrians spoke was very similar to Arabic. Where was the location of ancient Assyria? It's Iraq. That was the country that America responded to after 9-11. Ironically, they attacked Iraq, where Osama bin Laden wasn't. He wasn't there. They knew it was Osama, they knew it was Al-Qaeda, but they went to Iraq. They attacked Iraq, which was where Assyria once was. Pretty interesting, right? Assyrians were known for terror. They've been described as terrorists. Their language was closest to Arabic, the language also of Al-Qaeda. The location of Assyria is the same location that America went to war against in response to tear. Okay, interesting coincidence. Let's move on. Third harbinger is the fallen bricks. At this point the author begins taking us through Isaiah 9:10. The bricks have fallen. It's the beginning of the verse. The bricks have fallen. And what was the response to the bricks falling? It was silence. Hollywood stopped. Wall Street was closed for a number of days. Airports were closed. Even some schools let out. There was silence. Moments of silence all around America. But it only lasted for a moment. And what happened shortly after it, people began to speak loudly, especially America's leaders, and the words were the same all across political party lines. We must rebuild. We must rebuild. Remember Isaiah nine ten: The bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The ESV is one of the only translations that says build and does not say rebuild. You read the KJV, NKJV, you read the NASB, they all say rebuild. The bricks have fallen, but we will defiantly rebuild with dressed stones. Those are the words of Israel. After the events of 9-11, the New York City mayor, the governor of New York, the president of the United States, various senators, and others would all state the same words, we will rebuild. It was a very And here's a very strong quote given by a U.S. senator who would run for president in 2004, Senator John Kerry said, I believe one of the first things we should commit to with federal help that underscores our nation's purpose is to rebuild the towers of the World Trade Center and show the world we are not afraid. We are defiant. (laughs) Senator John Kerry ran for president in 2004. So America began plans for the Freedom Tower construction still has not completed. It's been a long time and uh, stuff keeps happening and they ended up changing the name. No more Freedom Tower. <laughs> we don't want any of that. It's the One World Trade Center is what they're going to call it. And they're also planning to build three other towers as well. So the construction of the towers had to start with a cornerstone. That leads us to our fifth harbinger. Isaiah 9:10 states, we will rebuild, we will build with dressed stones. That word dressed in Hebrew means gazit, which means a stone quarried and chiseled from mountain rock. This stone was far greater than the bricks that had originally been toppled. As the Israelites turned to dress stones to rebuild, they were acting in defiance. The judgment God had put on them. So on July 4th, 2004, the cornerstone of the first new tower was set. It was a quarried stone from the mountains of New York. Can you guess what the governor of New York, the tallest man in this picture, said of this stone during the laying of the cornerstone ceremony? Here's his quote. Governor Pataki, I believe that's his name. Today we take 20 tons of granite, the bedrock of our state, and place it as the foundation, the bedrock of a new symbol of American strength and confidence. Today we heirs of that revolutionary spirit of defiance lay this cornerstone. Good old spirit of defiance. (laughs) And he called it revolutionary. It's an American thing, defiance. So not only did he make it clear it was a dress stone from New York, just like it was in Isaiah 9.10, but he also said this cornerstone is being laid in defiance of what has happened to America. So now we've covered the first half of the verse. Now we're going to go on to the second. The second first, uh, half of 910 reads, "The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place." The sixth harbinger is the sycamore tree. After the dust settled from the towers collapsing, onlookers were surprised to find a tree that had been struck down protecting St. Paul's Chapel from damage. St. Paul's Chapel, because it was protected, became a place of shelter and rest to the firefighters who were working hard right after 9-11. It also became a place of sanctuary for many mourners in the city. The tree that protected the chapel would become a symbol for 9-11. It would be uprooted and its roots here. You can see it would be made into a special memorial set before the same St. Paul's Chapel in New York City. What type of tree was destroyed and then uprooted on 9-11? That's a sycamore tree. How about that? And I need to add that the very chapel that it protected, St. Paul's Chapel, was where America's first president, George Washington, and members of Congress held a prayer meeting immediately after he was inaugurated. If you guys know your American history, Washington, D.C. wasn't around when George Washington was inaugurated as president in 1789. So when he was inaugurated, he did his oath, And then he went to this very chapel that you see in the background with the members of the Senate, the members of the House, and they prayed together. In American history, the first meeting of the President, the Senate, and the House of Representatives was in this very same St. Paul's Chapel that was spared on 9-11. Because of that tree, miraculously, not one part of the building was damaged, and it is in Ground Zero. It was the only building. It was okay not one widow window was shattered on 9-11 can you believe that the twin towers fell right there it was protected from a tree and it was safe but nobody really took that to heart <laughs> maybe we should pray maybe god's trying to say something so the sycamore was cut down just like in isaiah 9:10, and you wouldn't guess what tree was put in its place would you Look at that tree. Isaiah 9.10 says a cedar tree would be planted in place of the sycamore. But the Hebrew reading of the word cedar is erez, which is more of a generic word for the pine family. A cedar tree is an evergreen, like other pine trees around the world. In November 2003, in the exact same spot where that sycamore was uprooted, they placed a pine tree in its place. A reverend from St. Paul's Chapel commemorated the pine tree with this quote, this ground zero tree of hope will be a sign of the indomitable nature of human hope. So indeed, the sycamore tree was replaced with an heiress tree with Americans unknowingly fulfilling Isaiah nine ten. But in order for Isaiah nine ten to be completely fulfilled, it would need to be spoken by representatives of the nation as it was spoken by the representatives of Israel in Isaiah's time. This leads us to the eighth harbinger, the utterance. The utterance would come after the previous events had been fulfilled. This came in 2004. The bricks had fallen, the stone had been set, the sycamore had been uprooted, the tree had been put in its place, and on the three-year anniversary of 9-11, vice presidential candidate John Edwards would give a speech at a, a church luncheon, a political church luncheon, centered on a specific Bible verse. Here's how his speech began. Good morning. Today, on this day of remembrance and mourning, we have the Lord's word to get us through. The bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. Here's how the speech ended. That was Senator John Edwards. He ended the speech. The cedars will rise, the stones will go up, and this season of hope will endure. He had no idea he was uttering a verse of condemnation for the nation that spoke it. If he had read the context of Isaiah 9, he would have seen a lot of angry words from God all around it. This is why you read your Bible and don't just choose a verse and preach on it. He wasn't the only senator to get it wrong, though. That's the utterance. That came three years after 9-11, 2004. After all the events had been fulfilled, everything had been fulfilled. The cornerstone, the, the heiress tree being planted, all those things had been fulfilled. But you need two witnesses. The ninth harbinger is the prophecy. This is three years earlier, September 12th, 2001. Senate Majority Leader Tom Daskell would address Congress to pass a joint resolution expressing the response of the Senate and the House of Representatives regarding the terrorist attacks From the previous day. So he's speaking this on behalf of all American people, the Senate and the House of Representatives. His speech was short and it began with words of mourning from what had happened. But then at the end of the message, he stated the following, and I quote Nothing can replace the losses that have been suffered. I know that there is only the smallest measure of inspiration that can be taken from this devastation. But there is a passage in the Bible from Isaiah. That I think speaks to all of us at times like this. The bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with dressed stones. The sycamores have been felled, but we will replace them with cedars. That is what we will do. We will rebuild and we will recover. Isaiah 9:10 wasn't just spoken by one witness, but by two. Two witnesses. Senator Tom Daskal prophesied the verse on September 12, 2001. Senator John Edwards spoke it after its fulfillment on September 11th, 2004, three years in between. In line with the verse, America had defied the terrorists and rebuilt on its own. America had held on to its hope in itself, not in God, but in itself. America was going to prosper. Not really. Whew, man, to say God. Never warned America would be ridiculous. Sadly, America responded with Isaiah nine ten, both in word and in deed. When Israel responded with Isaiah nine ten to Assyria's initial attack in seven thirty two BC, greater judgment followed them ten years later with complete exile to Assyria. When America responded with Isaiah nine ten after 9-11, greater judgment would come with America unknowingly. Bringing it on itself. You thought that stuff was crazy. I got more. (laughs) This is where we're going to see God the most vividly. Those were the coincidence. Now we're going to get to the bigger coincidences. Coincidences. I got to continue to emphasize this. At the root of both Israel and America was a trust in their own self-sufficiency. They despised the Lord and they went their own way. We can do it on our own, like the Tower of Babel. We can do it on our own. We are self-sufficient. For Israel, there was one completely clear sin that they made throughout their history. From the very beginning of Israel, King Solomon on, they made this mistake. And it was the neglect of the Sabbath year. The neglect of the Sabbath year. In Hebrew, it's pronounced, I believe it's pronounced, Shemitah. No response from the seminarians. Shemitah. We're going to go with it. Shemitah. The Shemitah or Sabbath year was to happen every seven years. Every seven years, the Shemitah was to happen. It was written about in Exodus. It was written about in Leviticus. It was also written about in Deuteronomy. God repeatedly emphasized it. It wasn't one of those random laws. It was over and over and over in the law. But sadly, Israel never paid attention to it. To them, the Sabbath year likely required too much faith. What it meant in that year was that they were supposed to give the land rest. They were supposed to trust in God for their provision. And they were also to release everyone from their debts. And if it meant giving back the property that they had gotten from them, they also had to do that. Release the property back to its original homeowners. But Israel had not learned their lesson from the manna in the wilderness. Rather than trusting in God for their provision, they trust in themselves. They did their own thing. They were self-sufficient throughout their history. Most scholars say that from King Solomon's reign to their exile was 490 years. And let's look at God's judgment in 2 Chronicles 36, verse 20 through 21. It says, He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. So most scholars look and they say that Israel was around for 490 years before exile. They went to exile. Jeremiah prophesied about this directly, said it would be 70 years in line with the Sabbath. They had not kept the Sabbath year for 70 years. So for 70 years, they would be in exile. Very, very clear in Scripture. Very, very clear in history. For America, even before 9-11, the nation was walking more and more in self-sufficiency. They were trusting in their own economy rather than in God. And just as Israel's punishment had been clear, had clear vivid lines drawn to the Sabbath years, surprisingly, so did America's. What followed 9-11 was the largest point crash in Wall Street history up to that point. By the end of one week, the United States had lost an estimated $1.4 trillion. It's a lot of money because of the crash right after 9-11. So the government feared economic collapse. They knew if something didn't happen quick, They were going to lose everything. The economy would fall on its face. Nations would look to other nations. America would no longer be the great nation that it was. So they needed an answer. They also knew that wars were coming, wars with Afghanistan, wars with Iraq, and so they needed funding for that as well. They desperately needed America and the world for that matter to keep their trust in America's economy. So the government needed Americans to spend their money and to not fear any economic collapse. So America's answer to saving the economy was to lower interest rates. Lower interest rates. In fact, they would soon lower interest rates so low that it was lower than inflation. That meant there was free money coming out. All right, think about this. In America, right now, in 2012, the average credit card interest rate is 17%. 17%. You don't don't pay your credit card bill, it's going to go up 70% every period. The average student loan in America. A lot of you guys know about this. Average student loan is 4%. 4%. And if we look on here, economic rebuilding, the interest rates of America, uh, next slide, John. Before September 11th, it was 3.5%. December 11th, 2001, 1.75%. Interest rates after June 2003, 1%. This is extremely low. So what happened here? The extremely low interest rates brought forth easy loans, easy borrowing, easy mortgages. If your credit card rate was 1% in your old flesh, how much would you buy? <laughs> if you knew I could buy this and and the, it's not going to increase, it's only going to increase 1% or just a little, you're going to start spending a lot. And this is what Americans did. And so As a result of the easy loans, easy borrowing, easy mortgages, that released a housing boom and a building boom. And from these low interest rates, credit bubbles and housing bubbles began to form. The standard cautions and restraints involved in borrowing and loaning would be thrown away. You guys can look at this. Extremely low rates lead to easy loans, easy borrowing, easy mortgages, which leads to a housing boom and building boom, which leads to a mushroom of debt. I'm going to point out two companies here, two corporations. You got Fannie Mae, that's the Federal National Mortgage Association, Freddie Mac, Federal Home Loan Mortgage Corporation. At that time, uh, uh, after, well, in 2008, as the years went by, these grew so much to where they had half the mortgages across America Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Let me read this. Uh, Banks would make loans that they never otherwise would have made. Consumers would spend money they never otherwise would have spent. People would buy houses they never otherwise could have afforded. Personal debt, government debt, corporate debt, all mushrooms. Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac in particular blew up because of the low interest rates. And they had yeah, half of the American mortgage market in 2008. Seven years after 9-11, remember seven years marks the Sabbath year. Seven years after 9-11, the housing bubble burst. Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, they collapsed on September 7th, 2008. Is it Lehman Brothers? Lehman? Lehman? (laughs) Lehman Brothers. They began to crumble on September 9th, 2008. September 11th, 2008 was their doom day. They collapsed. September 11th, 2008. Seven years is the biblical period of time that concerns a nation's financial and economic realm. Seven years. And seven years after 9-11, everything that had been gained economically was lost in that month of September 2008. You guys might remember that month. We're going to go into it a bit more. What's interesting is that the government chose to bail out these three corporations, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and Lehman Brothers. They bailed them out, releasing them of over $5 trillion of debt. Remember the Sabbath year? The debt, five trillion dollars worth of debt. In Korean, that's oman okpur. It's a lot of money. Five trillion dollars. So there's a release of debt just as there is in the Sabbath year. And if we look closer to it, this is where it gets a bit more alarming. Deuteronomy 15 is one of the main chapters detailing the Sabbath year. It starts out in verse 1 with a very clear command. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. Seven years after 9-11, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, Lehman Brothers would all collapse, requiring $5 trillion worth of debt to be released but God wasn't just paying attention to our calendar. He was paying even more close attention to the Hebrew calendar. I don't know if you guys know this, but Jewish rabbis and historians have their own calendar. For the Jews, there is no Jesus Christ, so there is no B.C. or A.D. Instead of the year 2012, the Hebrew calendar right now is in year 5,773. In Jews' eyes, yeah, there was no Christ, and so they've been kept keeping track of time, since the beginning of the Old Testament. They've also been keeping track of every Sabbath year. Every Sabbath year, systematically. The next Sabbath year will begin September 14th, 2014. That means the previous Sabbath year began in 2007. The last Sabbath year, according to the Hebrew calendar, began on September 13th, 2007, and it ended on September 29th, 2008. The last day of the Sabbath year, as we read in Deuteronomy 15, is the day for the canceling of debts. So what happened on September 29th, 2008? We had the greatest stock market crash ever in the history of the United States, September 29th, 2008. Already that month, the economy had been falling apart because of Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and the Lehman Brothers. But there was hope that there would be another government bailout plan that might help the economy. But when news was released on the morning of September 29, 2008, that the bailout plan had been defeated by Congress, Wall Street collapsed. How much was the bailout plan going to be? Let's look at that. $700 billion. Is that peculiar number seven. Now, you wouldn't be able to guess how much of the stock market was wiped away on September 29, 2008, would you? Look it up. 7%. Well, the stock market wiped away. 7%. Can you guys guess how many stock points were lost in the stock market? How many points the stock market dropped on September 29th, 2008? Can you guys guess? Put it up there. How about that? Gee, is God in the details? 777 points. That remains the record today for the greatest amount of stock market points lost in one day. Seven years after 9 11, on the last day of the Sabbath year, that happens every seven years, a $700 billion bailout plan was rejected by Congress, resulting in a 777 point drop in the stock market and 7% of the stock market being wiped away. Coincidence? I'm starting to find it hard to believe. It gets crazier. <laughs> Previous record for the biggest drop in the stock market was 684 points on the day the stock markets reopened after 9-11. Bet you guys can guess which day that was by looking at our next slide. Previous Sabbath year, before 2007-2008, began on September 30, 2000 and ended on September 17, 2001. September 17, 2001 was also a significant day in time. After 9-11, the markets would remain closed until September 17, 2001, when they would reopen. On September 17, 2001, the stock market had, up to that point, its greatest drop in points in the market's history, 684 points. Point total lost in the stock market on September 17, 2001, remained the number one record loss for America until seven years later, according to the Hebrew calendar, when the market dropped 777 points. Following that 777 point drop in 2008, were many more huge plunges in the stock market, but none more than that 777 point drop. Pretty crazy stuff, right? This is all on the internet. You guys can research this stuff very easily. This isn't hard research. It's just crazy correlations. So I want to share this information tonight to kind of wake you guys up. Kind of show you guys that God is in the details. Because we're entering a time in history where it's going to get a bit tough for the world. We've already seen this in America as a response to 9-11 and what followed 9-11. It's gotten a bit tougher for America. I think most people would agree. And if you read your Bible, it's not going to get that much better. Okay, I'm not a doomsday prophet or pastor, but I can read Matthew 24 very clearly. It's going to get tougher for the economy. It's going to get tougher. There's going to be more wars. There's going to be more natural disasters. It's going to increase. You study the past 15 years, you're going to be shocked to see how many natural disasters, how many economic collapses there have been in the past 15 years compared to the past 100 years. It's pretty, pretty eye-opening. And you guys need to be aware, and you guys need to see God in the details. Not fear in the details, but God in the details. Lessons from the symbols of America. I mentioned before, the Pentagon is a symbol of America's military. So many Americans across the east and the west put their hope and their trust in America's military. It makes them feel safe. At least it did before 9-11. It did before the wars on terror. Twin Towers, symbol of America's economic prosperity. People would look to the Twin Towers. It was the World Trade Center. world didn't trade in Europe. They didn't trade in Asia. They traded in New York. The World Trade Center. Number one market in the world. And it was up in smoke. Do you guys look at 9 /11 and think about the symbolism of what happened on that day? The two greatest symbols of America's hope and trust and faith both face judgment on 9/11. Can't you see God in the details? Can't you see him trying to get America's attention back on him rather than on themselves? rather than on the soldiers around them and the money in the bank and the money at their job and the prosperity and riches of America? It's a big wake-up call. America didn't respond in the way they should have. And this is a crucial point. God is showing us that everything of the world that you put your trust in over God will face judgment. You guys got to know this. Everything in the world that you put your trust in over God is going to face judgment. Why? Because God cannot bless idolatry. He judges it. God cannot bless idolatry. He judges it. So you put your trust in man. You put your trust in your corporation. You put your trust in your future and in stock things and, and different things like that. I'm sorry. You're not going to prosper. The greatest example of this in the Bible is Abraham Abraham. And Lot. Now I've spoken about this before, but this is something that has to get into your core. Abraham and Lot were prospering. They were prospering so much they could not be together. You read about this in Genesis. And so they said, We got to split ways. You got to go one way, I got to go the other. And Abraham said, You choose wherever you want to go, I'll just go the other. So Lot looked around at the land and he said, Look, the land of Sodom is fertile, it's beautiful. It looks great. It's well watered. That's what scripture says. It was fertile, well watered, green. So he said, I'm going to go this way. This looks good. This land looks good. Abraham said, doesn't matter to me. Wherever I go, I'm going to be blessed. So Abraham went one way. He went in the opposite direction of those fertile lands and he prospered. Lot went and he chose the world. He put his trust in the land. He put his trust in the people around him. He lost everything except his two daughters. He even lost his wife. He lost everything. This was a man that at one point was equal to Abraham. They had so much, they couldn't be near each other. And he put his trust in the world. And he said, I'm going to go where the land looks good. I'm going to put my trust that this looks looks like it's going to prosper. I'm going to trust Sodom. Sodom looks great. Wow. What a mistake, right? Abraham said, I'm going to go wherever God leads me and I'm going to prosper. And he prospered. This is what you guys got to know. When you put your trust in these symbols, when you put your trust in the ways of man and the things of man, God cannot bless you. He cannot bless your life. This doesn't mean you don't invest in the stock market. This doesn't mean that you try and and, and innovate things and, and create things and build businesses. But what it does mean is that your cornerstone is always Christ. The one that you trust in, that Jehovah Jireh that we prayed, prayed for over North Korea is your Jehovah Jireh. The Lord's your provider. And you know, no matter what happens with his business, no matter what happens with my money, no matter what happens with my finances, no matter what happens with my future, I belong to God. The righteous man will not go hungry. That's what the Proverbs say. He will prosper in all his ways. Proverbs sixteen twenty five says, there is a way that seems right to a man but in its end is the way to death. Next slide we're going to look at. The chart you're going to see on the screen is the Dow market. This is right as the plunge started, September 2008. You can see in November 2007, 14,000 points. In October 2008, it was under 9,000. And it would continue to fall to where the stock market, I believe it was cut almost in half, the stock market. It's pretty ridiculous. Now, I know maybe this doesn't mean that much to you guys right now, but if you had put your hope in here, your trust in here, about a quarter of you would be okay. About a half of you would have had to take extreme pay cuts, be in shaky times. About a quarter of you would lose everything. Think about that. This chart right here put a lot of fear Too many Americans. Maybe it put some fear into, into you guys as well. I don't know. But when I look at this chart, what it reminds me, after all that I've shared tonight, is this. God has everything under control. God has everything under control. Next slide, John. That chart is screaming to the world. Loss, instability, fear. The Sabbath years and all the sevens showing up to show how much God is in control, it gives me peace shows me that God's in the details. Yes, the things of this world are going to face judgment, but I'm not of this world. I'm a citizen of heaven. I belong to God. I'm an eternal being. I'm set apart. I am holy. I'm not of this earth. I'm not of this world. He will provide for me. What you guys need to know in the book of Revelation, it says that in the end times, there will be one world government, a new world order, <laughs> if you want to say. <laughs> one government with one currency. And if you don't get a mark on your forehead or your wrists, you cannot buy or sell. You must come under the government's rule. You must go under their wages. Pastor Benjamin preached about this a couple of weeks ago, about the wages of man. All right. And the spirit of the Antichrist. You guys should listen to this message because it's very similar. Revelation is all about the Antichrist. They say in the end times, this is Revelation. The Apostle John speaking He says in the end times, if you do not get that mark, you cannot buy or sell Can't get food, can't get nothing. But to add to that, if you get that mark, you're going to hell. (laughs) You guys got to get this in your head now. Future's not that far off. Your faith has to be in God. It might seem like a crazy faith right now, but it's going to be very in your face later. And this is what's going to separate the sheep from the goats. This is what's going to separate true believers from those who never really had their trust in God. Oh, they went to church, but their trust was more in that Pentagon and more in those Twin Towers. Who's your trust in? You see, Isaiah 55. Do you read that chapter? It says, come buy wine and milk without money, without price. God tells his people to listen to him and they can eat what is good and delight themselves in rich food. He doesn't just say, hey, come to me. And I'll give you some bread. He says, come to me and I'm going to give you some rich food. You're going to delight in it. You don't need that mark. You don't need that trust in this economy. You don't need this trust in man. You don't need to come under the wages of man and the government of this world to survive. Your sufficiency is not in man. It's in me. It's in God. It's in him. God's people are never limited by the economy They're never limited by their surroundings. There is no limit for God's people's provision because we worship a limitless God who loves us. Even as the world continues to grow darker and even as the world's economies continue to suffer, God's people will prosper. Our trust is not in the ways of man, so we will not face the judgment that this world faces. We can instead rest peacefully in God's goodness and the knowledge he has everything under control. Nahum 1.7 says, The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in Him. Who is your trust in today? I want us to respond with prayer. You know, the, the author of The Harbinger, his point in writing the book was to call Americans for Repentance. Okay, and this is just me speaking. This isn't New Philadelphia Church. This is just Pastor John Michael speaking. But I believe that time has passed, and I believe that they had the chance. 9/11, uh, but even when when Alan Hood came and spoke, and other mighty men and women from America have spoken, they know what's coming in America. And you guys saw this with the election. You had a Mormon, you know, running for it. And you had uh, President Obama, who's supporting gay rights. And all sorts of stuff. I remember on election day, I opened up my phone and I saw the headlines. It said, marijuana legalized in these states. Uh, Gay marriages legalized in all these states. Um, Assisted suicide uh, voted for in all these states. You talk about headlines you don't want to see when you wake up in the morning. I'm not saying we need to just say, oh, doomsday and and say, say things like that. But what we need to do as a church is to rise up, to be the light of the world, to be a city on the hill, because even as they face judgment, God's people are going to prosper. You know, in that year, of 2008, when the economy fell apart, IHOP had their highest funds come in that year. They were prospering in 2008 while the whole world was suffering. God's people should prosper no matter what, and they will. This is the trust that we need to have. What I want us to do right now is I want us to praise the Lord for his provision and I want us to repent of any self-reliance and any trust in the ways of man, money, education, any of these things that you are relying on more than God for your future. And more than that, I want you guys to repent for despising Korea. If it is in your heart that you have struggled at times, if you said, this is not, I can't prosper here I feel boxed in. I feel like this is just the time. I got to get through it here in Korea and then move on to those greener pastures. I want you guys to repent of that attitude. You are not Lot. Your prosperity is not based upon the land. It's not based upon your work. Your prosperity is based upon the spirit of God that is upon you. The same spirit that was upon Abraham. So church, let's praise the Lord for all he's given us. Let's repent of self-sufficiency Let's repent of despising Korea. Let's pray.